please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for February 11th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is John Leshy, who is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. He was Solicitor of the Interior Department through the Clinton administration. Earlier, he was counsel to the chair of the Natural Resources Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives, associate solicitor of Interior for Energy and Resources in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. He led the Interior Department transition team for Clinton-Gore in 1992 and co-led it for Obama-Biden in 2008. He's published widely on natural resources and on constitutional law. The U.S. government owns and manages for public objectives more than 600 million acres, and that's about 30% of the nation's entire land. These lands and the agencies that manage them, the National Forest Service, the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Land Management are a presence in our Western communities. John Leshy's forthcoming book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, soon to be published by Yale University Press, is 600-plus pages, and it chronicles this history and suggests how Congress, the executive, and the federal courts have responded to the numerous challenges facing these lands. John, we are recording this interview on February 9th, 2022, and we are approaching the sesquicentennial of President Ulysses S. Grant's signing the legislation on March 1st, 1872, creating the very first national park in world history, Yellowstone National Park. So it's especially propitious that your book is coming out at this time. Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, possibly being released by Yale University Press on (laughs) March 1st, the sesquicentennial. Anyway, congratulations for that. It's really a monumental work. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Well, you note in your preface, and I'm quoting the preface, political rhetoric has taken on a more partisan cast than at any other time since the Civil War. Recent Republican Party platforms have contained a plank advocating that the U.S. relinquish ownership of significant amounts of public land, and the Trump administration moved to transfer as much control of public lands as possible to fossil fuel and other development interests. Some who advocate stripping the United States of control of significant amounts of public land offer narratives about how elite intentional government control of the public lands and have put a stranglehold on local communities and how an, quote, angry West in a sagebrush rebellion aims to get our lands back. Now, you write that the truth is quite different. Well, we'll explore this different truth during our interview, but let's begin at the beginning of the Republic. What was the situation at the end of the Revolutionary War, and how did the former colonies view public lands, and how did they relate to one another in that regard? 
I start my book with that story because it's an interesting one and it helps, I think, explode one of the numerous myths about the public lands that they've generally been a divisive force in American life. Even before the Revolutionary War ended, when the former 13 colonies were trying to form a government, they were unable to do so. They were unable to ratify what that charter was, which was then called the Articles of Confederation, because they had a split in their ranks between states that had claims to Western lands, lands across the Appalachians. Seven states had those claims, and six states didn't. And the six states without those claims were very fearful that the seven states with the claims were going to end up dominating them because they would own all this land west of the Appalachians. So they held up the formation of the government for several years over this dispute. And eventually a compromise was struck where the states with those claims gave them up and they gave them up to the national government. And those claims became the first public lands. And so the United States national government took over those Western lands, and then managed them to keep the Union together as it advanced across the continent. So the very beginnings of the public lands were kind of a success story in cooperation and not divisiveness to bring the government together. And the public lands have played that role, I argue in this book, many times ever since. You cite three ordinances that that happened before the Constitution happened, and those were the ordinances, first of 1784. That gave equal footing to any new states, but the federal government would still decide about disposal of public lands. And then the ordinance of 1785... This one's important to talk about because it's affected us ever since. It required a rectangular survey system of townships that were six miles square and included 36 sections, each of one mile square. To summarize, in each of these, the number 16 section would be reserved for the maintenance of public schools, and then four scattered sections would be for future sales. Tell us a bit about that. I I tried to summarize it in the interest of times, but one thing really thrilled me was even at that point, even before the Constitution was written or ratified, our country was concerned about public education. I think it's a really terrific thing to note, and most people don't appreciate it. This was at a time, remember, in history when there was almost no public school systems. New England had some But the rest of the country had none, really. And so Congress sits down, the Continental Congress, the Congress of the Confederation, sits down and says, one of the things we're going to do with the public lands that we just got in these sessions of state claims, one of the things we're going to do with this is make sure that we use those lands to subsidize and encourage the development of public schools. So the public lands helped launch the public school system, system of public education in the United States with tremendous benefits ever since. So that's another example of the public lands being used to sort of bring people together and think for the long term. Frankly, much the same happened during the Civil War when the first federal land-grant college act was passed, the so-called Morrill Act, which used public lands to subsidize the development of what were then called agricultural and mechanical colleges, higher education. So we've got a long history of the public lands playing an important role in public education. Yes, and that's something we celebrate in Bozeman, Montana, because the Montana State University is one of those land-grant universities. To your knowledge, John Leshy, 
Did any other nation in the world have that allegiance to public education at the time? I don't know, frankly. I'm not an expert in the history of public education. I would be surprised. I think probably my instinct is that the United States led the way here, but I can't say for sure. Yeah, I tried to rack my brain about that, and I'm not familiar with any other country doing that. Then finally, there was the Ordinance of 1787, the Northwest Ordinance, and that created a roadmap for further states to become states. And it also mentioned that navigable waters would be common highways forever free from tax, impost, or duty. And that states must have a Republican form of government, which, frankly, with uh, some of the things that are going on in state legislatures <laughs> now, could be challenged or are being challenged. Any comments? <laughs> well, yeah, the, the Northwest Ordinance was actually the most important of those three ordinances, and it set a pattern for many things in the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States was actually drafted months after, in fact, was being drafted when the Northwest Ordinance went through the Continental Congress. So it had a number of things in it that set the pattern for the future. And one of them was, you mentioned already, the idea that the new states would be admitted. The, the, the Northwest Ordinance and these three ordinances made a very fundamental decision, which lasted ever since, which was the United States is not going to have colonies in these Western lands. The United States is going to admit these territories into the Union as states. And that was a very clever way of keeping the nation together as, as the settlement proceeded west across the continent. And so we didn't have colonies like the British colonies. We are going to have states that have, quote, equal footing with the existing states. But there's a very important footnote here. The equal footing in the Northwest Ordinance, that new states would be admitted on equal footing with the old states, also made very clear that the United States would keep and could keep lands, ownership of lands inside these states to manage and use for national purposes. And so equal footing doesn't mean states all get the lands. The, the, the framers of the Northwest Ordinance made clear that that was not the case. Now, the sagebrush rebellions that have occurred from time to time since and that you uh, talked about – they seize on the idea of equal footing to say, well, you know, there were no federal lands inside of Virginia back in 1787. So, you know, when Utah is admitted to the Union, it, it shouldn't have any federal lands in it either. That issue was actually confronted by the, the framers of the Northwest Ordinance and the U.S. Constitution and rejected. So there is really no basis, no legal basis for the argument that this equal footing idea gives states some sort of equal claim to federal lands. Well, that brings us up to then the Constitution itself. And what's of interest to us in this discussion was the property clause of Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. And I'm going to quote it here. The Congress shall have the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States, and nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. Okay, now that has <laughs> clarified and also caused all sorts of problems ever since. The wording of dispose of 
has been argued about and argued about. Now, what is your understanding of the use of that term? You would go back to the dictionaries of the time, and the most famous was Ben Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language. If you look at what dispose of means, it can mean that you transfer title, but it can also mean many things other than that. And so there is absolutely no indication When the property clause used the term for disposal, it was not saying you have to get rid of these lands because the idea of disposing of them means you devote them to a particular purpose or you do something specific with them. You don't necessarily transfer title. So that's another argument of the sagebrush rebels is that the use of the term disposal meant the framers of the government always contemplated the United States would not own any public land. And actually, if you look at history, nothing could be further than the truth. From the very beginning, it was understood the United States was going to keep, could keep some of these lands and manage them for national purposes. Now, we should definitely acknowledge that when we're discussing the government of the United States and land laws and land rights and all that kind of stuff, we acknowledge that the original inhabitants of this land were dispossessed, and that is still ongoing You do mention early on in your book some issues dealing with Indian lands, and you talk about the Marshall Trilogy, referring to the first Chief Justice Marshall. Share with our listeners about this Marshall Trilogy, and I might add, these were unanimous decisions. Yes, these are three Supreme Court decisions, all came within the space of a few years in the 1820s and 1830s, which basically established the fundamental principles of what we today call federal Indian law, which is what is the status of Indian nations, of Indian tribes, and how do they fit into our governmental system? Those were the principles that Chief Justice John Marshall announced there. Now, he wasn't writing on a clean slate because actually from the very beginning of the European invasion of North and South America. The European nations actually worked out some principles of uh, what became sort of international law to govern this idea. What happens when we show up in these places and there are these people living there? Well, what, what status do they have? What, what is their legal position? All of the European nations pretty much, and this dates back to the 1600s, well before the United States was created, all the European nations basically agreed that the indigenous peoples would have some rights, that they were sovereign nations, that they should be dealt with on a government-to-government basis, and that they had a legal claim to land. Now, what the international law principle said, however, was that the discovery by European nations of those lands gave the discoverer also a legal claim to those lands. And so you had this conflict set up between the discoverer's title and the Indian's so-called right of occupancy. And that would be resolved, this international legal principle said, according to principles of just war or purchase and negotiation. And that set in motion the practice that all the European nations used and the United States used once it was formed of entering into treaties or agreements with the Indian nations as they moved across the continent to resolve the Indian title claims. 
And these treaties usually involved things like we're going to give up, we the, the indigenous peoples will give up a certain amount of our land and we'll be compensated for it. And that was the practice that took place as the Europeans and then the U.S. marched across the continent. Now, nobody and certainly I would never argue that all those deals were fair. There were wars and the Indian nations were negotiating, but hardly from a position of strength, right? I mean, they didn't have that much bargaining power. And so there were clearly some injustices involved in all of this. And the United States and the Native nations have been dealing with this ever since. I don't tell that story in any detail because it's a really quite different story from the one I'm telling. The one I'm telling is once the United States got clear title to these lands— from the Native nations. How did it decide to keep many of those lands and to manage them for these broad public purposes? That story that I tell really started about 1890. That was the kind of pivotal point. And that was pretty much after, many years after, in many cases, the Indian title had been resolved. And so my story is a, is a rather different story from that, although I do have Chapters toward the end that deal in, in considerable detail with what is the modern way we reconcile the native claims to lands. They may have given up title to a lot of these lands, but they obviously didn't lose their interest in these lands, and these lands are sacred to them for many purposes and that sort of thing. So there's still conflicts that we all know happen today, and that we're still wrestling with those conflicts. And I have a couple of chapters toward the end that, that give a, a good deal of detail to how we resolve those conflicts in modern times. Before we get to that 1890 period, we have to get through the earlier part. Um, okay. And the pre-Civil War period, you say that public land divestiture was the main business of the government in regard to public lands. What does that entail? What is the divesting of public lands and building the nation entail? Well, we basically sold some of them for revenue, we, the United States government, but more often they, we gave them away to various interests for various purposes. We gave new states when they were admitted to the union, millions of acres of public land. Every new state that was admitted got millions of acres of public land as a way to get them launched. We're going to give them some assets to work with to get them launched. We're going to give millions of acres to canal companies and to railroad companies to build an infrastructure. And we're going to give land away to farmers and settlers. And we're going to give land away to miners and others who are going to do economic development and, and uh, that sort of thing. So there were a lot of different purposes and a lot of different strategies. But the divestiture, the give Giving away of title was the dominant policy during the pre-Civil War era. It wasn't the exclusive policy. We kept some of those lands from the very beginning, and we bought other lands. There were large forests, for example, in the southeast United States, inside territory of the original 13 states that were bought by the United States and used for forests for, for example, a timber mast for naval ships. Very important public purpose. The United States bought land and kept land in the southeast for that purpose way back, dating back to the 1800s. So there were, from the beginning, efforts to keep and manage land for national purposes. But 
as I said, prior to the Civil War, the, the dominant impulse was let's give a lot of it away. We got to get people out there. We got to get those Europeans out there on the land and we got to fold them into the Union through these new states, through admitting new states to keep the country together, which was a great concern back in the original days, you know, was that, wow, we're going to send all these settlers out there and then they're going to declare their independence and go off somewhere, and form a new government independent of the United States. We don't want that to happen. And so a lot of the public land policy was designed to keep the nation together as it expanded across the continent. We're speaking with John Leshy about his book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. You mentioned the railroads in giving away land to them, and they got gazillion acres of land. The government decided to use a checkerboard pattern, keeping even numbers of the sections. Remember, we were talking about the, the way it was all surveyed into 36 sections. And 12-mile-wide corridor gifts to the railroads in Illinois, Alabama, Mississippi. So that was 3 million acres of public land. They didn't give it to Kentucky or Tennessee because the government didn't have land in Kentucky or Tennessee. And you point out that the railroads got built just fine there. But would you, <laughs> would you please explain the thinking behind this checkerboard pattern? Because it's, it's causing problems even today in terms of public access. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly in places like Montana, as you know, and Nevada and the, these western states with these big transcontinental railroad land grants in this checkerboard pattern. That's still you can see that on the landscape today, and it does cause problems. Now, well, how did this come about? Very, it's a very curious thing. In retrospect, I mean, you look at it today and think, God, what were they thinking? Right? Uh, well, here's what they were thinking. It was a political impulse. The United States decided we're going to give a lot of this land away, and there were people who were critical of that. Why are you giving the land to these railroads, all this land? And, and there was some opposition to it. So the proponents came up with this strategy. Well, look, let's keep a whole bunch of land at the same time we're giving it away in this checkerboard pattern. So we'll keep a lot of lands in a lot of places, and we'll give a lot of it away, and what will happen – the argument went, as we build the railroads, the value of the land is going to increase because it's now going to be available for transportation, for goods and services and all that kind of stuff. So as the land values increase and the ownership is in this checkerboard pattern, the United States will make a profit too. The railroads will be able to sell their lands to underwrite the cost of the railroad at a higher price. And the United States, who kept a bunch of these lands in this checkerboard pattern will also be able to sell their lands at a higher price. And all this makes the whole idea of railroad land grants a profit-making enterprise for the government, not just a giveaway. That was the argument. Now, as my book points out, there are a lot of flaws in that argument, and it never really worked out that way. But the checkerboard pattern did persist, uh, and in many places per has persisted to this very day. And there's a lot of time and effort that has been spent in the last 30, 40, 50 years to try to redress that problem, to overcome that problem in creative ways. And we're actually succeeding. The checkerboard is, is slowly disappearing through things like creative land exchanges and things like that. Because everybody recognizes that a checkerboard pattern is a, with different owners and different parcels is a lousy way to manage for things like biodiversity conservation or to have national parks and that sort of thing. So we're spending a lot of effort overcoming the checkerboard problem. 
I had never been familiar with what was originally meant by reservations. My experience was only hearing of in terms of Indian reservations, but that's not actually the origin of it. Would you explain about reservations and the acquisitions of public lands? I remember starting back with the sessions of the Western land claims of this uh, seven of the 13 original colonies. They came into the United States. That became public lands. Now, the United States, from time to time, for various purposes, decided we're going to keep some of those lands. We're not going to make them available for giveaway or sale or whatever. We're going to keep them. And the mechanism that the United States used, and this dates way back to the beginning of the country, practically, was to reserve those lands. That was the term that was used. We are going to reserve the lands, and the the reserved lands became reservations. Now, as you say, many people think of that, well, those are Indian reservations. And that's true. That is, Indian reservations are one kind of reservation. Indian reservations are reserved by the United States, but with a very big difference from other reservations, which is They are reserved by the United States, but held in trust for Indian tribes or Indian nations, Indian peoples. So they are not clear legal title in the same way that the other federal lands are held in clear legal title because the United States is simply a trustee for the Indian nations. But when we reserve lands for things like national forests or national parks or national wildlife refuges or whatever, We are reserving the land in U.S. ownership in fee simple. U.S. has complete title. So the term reservation, in other words, is a little bit confusing because it applies somewhat differently in the Indian context from how it applies in the other contexts. But the root idea is simply that a reservation is the United States hanging on to ownership of land to use it for national purposes. And another important term to understand is withdrawal. How does withdrawal relate to (laughs) reservation? You are becoming an expert on public land law, whether you like it or not, I suppose. Well, Uh, (laughs) all one has to do is read your book, Our Common Ground, John Leshy. (laughs) Okay, so remember I said that before the Civil War, the dominant impulse, the dominant thing driving the policy was to give these lands away, sell them, or in most cases, just give them away for various purposes. And so Congress passed a whole bunch of statutes, laws that allowed for that, homestead laws, mining laws, that sort of thing. The withdrawal idea was where the United States decided, well, wait a minute, we don't want the homestead law or the mining law to apply to this particular tract of land because we want to keep it for various purposes. So we are going to, quote, withdraw it. A withdrawal and a reservation are are almost the same thing. And, and frankly, I argue that there's really no legal difference between the two. The idea is these are tools by which the United States keeps land in national ownership and does not make them available for divestment under laws like the mining law or the homestead law or the railroad land grant acts and that sort of thing. Another surprise to me in your book, Our Common Ground, was the Dred Scott decision. Everybody knows that that was primarily about whether or not Dred Scott could be free in the Northern Territories. But the decision, which was written by Chief Justice Rogers Brooke Taney, and I'm going to quote this, properly understood 
Congress's authority over the property clause applied only to those lands over which the United States had jurisdiction in 1787. That meant it could have no influence upon a territory afterwards acquired from a foreign government, which included land from Florida to the Pacific. End of the quote. That was a huge shocker to me. I mean, the the whole thing was a shock. It's it's horrifying. But wow, originalism is getting such a lot of press these days. And this was the originalism decision of all originalism decisions. This must have eventually been overturned as the whole decision was. But what is your comment on this, John Leshy? Well, to me, it's one of the most fascinating parts of the old history of public land law. The Dred Scott decision by the U.S. Supreme Court is, I think, almost any lawyer and legal historian will tell you, it is the worst decision in U.S. History, Supreme Court history. I mean, it is it is abysmally badly reasoned. It has nothing to do with history. It's not grounded in originalism. It's not grounded in anything other than a desire to protect the South and its slavery interests as the U.S. expanded across the continent. So it was driven by a desire to perpetuate slavery. And everybody knew it at the time. And so it was made up. Chief Justice Taney basically made it up. There is no suggestion whatsoever in any of the founding documents of the country that the United States would have no power to outlaw slavery in territories. The United States did outlaw slavery in the territory, starting with the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. It could not be clearer. There shall be no slavery north of the Ohio River. Congress said that in 1787. The Missouri Compromise in 1820, Congress said, we're going to admit Missouri as a slave state, and we're going to prohibit slavery above a line we're drawing out to the Pacific. So Congress had a long practice of doing what the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case said you actually had no power to do. Now, has Dred Scott ever been overruled? This is a kind of a curious part of it. Dred Scott has never been officially overruled by the court. The court doesn't talk about Dred Scott. It is regarded as such a blemish on judicial behavior and judicial reasoning that the court really uh, has barely mentioned it since it was decided. Dred Scott legally was overruled by the Civil War amendments to the Constitution, by the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, because they made clear that Slavery was not going to exist and that black people had equal rights, et cetera, et cetera. So legally it was overruled by the Civil War amendments. But the Supreme Court, curiously, I mean, it's not so curious. It's, it's so such an embarrassment that the court doesn't really mention it and hasn't ever since it was decided. It's, it never had any precedential value because everybody understood that it was basically a corrupt decision. Now, as my book points out, very few people have drawn the connection between the public lands and the property clause and the Dred Scott decision, but it's right there in plain sight. I mean, the court wanted to make it clear that Congress could not prevent slavery from spreading to the West. And the only way the pro-slavery court could do that would be to say that Congress has no power under the property clause to legislate with respect to the territories. It's laughable in retrospect, and as I said, regarded widely as the worst decision in Supreme Court history, and it's it's now just part of history. The part that makes us uncomfortable to discuss. Yes. 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 But we'll move on. We'll move on. <laughs> We're going to gloss over important acts, the Homestead Act of 60, 1862, the Morrill Land Grant College Act you already referred to. 
the Pacific Railroad Act, 1862. Let's talk about the Mining Law of 1872. Yeah, also one of my favorites. I actually wrote a, a book about that years ago, the, the Mining Law of 1872. One of the remarkable things, maybe the most remarkable thing about it is it's still in existence. It is still the primary law that governs so-called hard rock mining on federal land because Congress has never been able to uh, repeal it. It was part of the pre-Civil War emphasis on expansion, getting people out there on the land, getting those European descendants out there on the land to keep the United States together. In the gold rush of 1848 in California, which was the first significant mineral finding on public lands in, in history, hundreds of thousands of people went out to California to make their fortune by staking claims and mining the public lands. When they were doing that, there was no, absolutely no law that authorized it because Congress had repealed laws that had set up a leasing system for minerals on public lands in the 1840s before the gold rush. So when when the gold rush happened, there was no law. And for 18 years after that, there was no law because Congress was kind of paralyzed and unable to deal with it. So these miners who were technically trespassing on these lands were, you know, busy extracting all these minerals and everybody was getting rich and nobody was complaining except the Indians who were pushed to one side as this happened. But then finally, after the Civil War, Congress got around to saying, "Okay, we've been silent long enough. We're going to pass this law, which is basically designed to ratify or put in place a system that the miners themselves had been operating under since 1848, since the gold rush. And it was engineered by a very interesting character in public lands history as the senior senator from Nevada, the first senator from Nevada, a guy named William Stewart, Big Bill Stewart. He was a giant of a guy in many ways, including the fact that he was tall and he was also quite corrupt. He had to actually take a hiatus out of his Senate career for 12 years when he became involved in selling some worthless mining property to a bunch of Brits. And he took 12 years off, but then he came back. But he authored what became known as the Mining Law of 1872. It actually first passed in 1866. And Stewart made a fortune. He was the richest guy in the Senate, and he made a fortune off litigating mining claims under the law that he had designed. And he designed it with a lot of red tape because he wanted to keep his his law practice going while he was in the Senate. So he was really quite a figure. And the Mining Law, as I said, which makes it very easy to stake and locate claims for now hard rock minerals, they're called, gold, silver, platinum, copper, that sort of thing. The mining law makes that very easy to locate those claims, and and it's still in existence. It still operates today. So this William Stewart was quite a guy. I enjoyed your passage on him. Mark Twain actually tangled with him um, (laughs) in, in Congress and wrote a piece. I'd love to read the piece. I couldn't find it. But anyway, he also authored the Apex Law, and that allowed for extralateral rights to follow a deposit beyond the claim, regardless of whose land you then interfere with. That was described as a recipe for legal hell. But we'll move move on to the pillaging of the public lands for wood, grass, and minerals, The Railroad Act of 1875 allowed 200-foot access to timber because they needed that for the railroad ties. But then in 1882, this was at the discretion of regulators, the Interior Secretary, Henry Teller, considered that that actually means up to 50 miles from the tracks. So that's just one example of the pillaging of the public lands for wood. 
And also then Senator Stewart's association with the Comstock load in Nevada, one million board feet of timber was taken for that mine, and it was called the Tomb of the Forests of the Sierras. But let's get to livestock grazing, because that is still such a disturbing issue even today. Talk about that, please, John Leshy. Well, livestock grazing was prevalent on public lands, really, after this. uh, this, We're now talking about the western public lands, basically, west of the Mississippi, on the Great Plains and in the Rocky Mountains and Great Basin, etc. After the Civil War, there was a basically a a kind of giant onslaught of cattle coming out of Texas, where cattle had been king for a long time. The public lands in the western states became sort of overrun by cattle and sheep, mostly from foreign investor-owned operations that were not long-term. They were just basically out there to plunder the grass on the public lands as much as they could. No law, by the way, supported this. This was sort of like mining. It just happened. And then Congress kind of stood aside and, and let it happen. And there was this giant... Many scientists have looked at this today and say, well, they, they ravaged the land. Basically, they, they overgrazed, particularly in the hot deserts in the southwest. They permanently changed ecosystems because they just overran the grasslands with huge numbers of, of livestock without any attempt to limit the number. And then there was a big crash in the 18, late 1880s, mostly driven by weather because there were droughts and then terrific uh, harsh winters that killed massive amounts of livestock and permanently changed the nature of the livestock operation. So after that, the livestock operations tended to get smaller and gradually came under government control because, remember, almost all of this was public lands, was lands that the United States owned. They first came under control because a number of these grasslands, tens of millions of acres, uh, became part of the national forest system in the 1890s and 1900s. And then the rest of it came under control in the 1930s, mostly the hot deserts in the Great Basin and the desert southwest came under control in the 1930s as a result of what was called the Taylor Grazing Act. But it took really 40 years after the great crash in the late 1880s to ultimately bring livestock grazing under control by government. Yes, and we're still dealing with this issue today with individuals who are just flaunting even the minor regulations uh, governing the land. And I'm referring to the Bundys and their factions. But we have to keep going. Um, We're passing over very important things and acts and evolutions of understanding about our relationship to the natural world. But the next one I want to talk about is the National Forest Organic Act of 1897. Please talk about that to our listeners. Yes. Congress in 1891 authorized the president, told the president, go out and set up forest reserves, lands in the higher reaches of the watershed, public lands, put them off limits to divestiture, to divestment, hold them in national ownership, because we want to protect, primarily they were concerned about protecting water supplies for downstream uses. So Congress started that system in 1891, but it was six more years before Congress actually agreed upon the terms of how are we going to manage these forests, these uplands. They became known as a national forest, but they included lots of grasslands and open space and and other things besides forests. And so the 1897 Act was really the first major public land management act, a generic applicability. It applied to all the forest reserves. 
And it basically said we're going to manage these lands for conservation, for protecting water supplies, and for furnishing timber. And that law actually remained in effect pretty much unchanged until 1976. So it lasted a long time before Congress finally got around to replacing it. So it was the guiding law that governed national forest management for several decades. And it very specifically was not geared to maximize wood production. I want to emphasize that that it was for water protection and long-term viability of the forest, because that is something that is still up for debate. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and in fact, the National Forest, logging on the National Forest was really pretty minimal until after World War II. And then after World War II, you know, returning servicemen, population boom, there was a tremendous building boom, and a lot of the private forests had been basically cut. And so there was a great turn to the public lands as timber supply. And so the logging on the national forest shot up beginning in the late 1940s and continued at a quite high level for the next few decades. This logging was being done, as you mentioned, under this 1897 Act, which was not designed for massive, large-scale, clear-cutting logging. And so environmentalists in 19, the early 1970s brought a lawsuit saying, hey, all this logging is actually inconsistent with the law because it, it is not allowed by the terms, by the quite limiting terms of the 1897 Act. And they won that lawsuit. And that forced Congress to go back to the drawing board and said, okay, we need to update the National Forest Management Act, which they did in 1976. And then eventually, as a result of that act and the application of the Endangered Species Act, logging on the national forests was significantly diminished in starting in the 1980s and 1990s and, and pretty much back down to its pre-World War II levels. And so while logging is obviously significant in, in a number of areas, it is not, the, is not nearly as widespread and unrestricted as it was in the decades immediately after World War II. The Timber and Stone Act of 1878, probably, and uh, yeah. This will be of, of interest to our listeners, particularly in California, because many of our listeners devoted their lives to trying to protect the old growth redwoods. And one of the problems, the Timber and Stone Act of 1878, it allowed the Department of Interior to sell 160 acres for $2.50 an acre if it's unfit for cultivation for timber. It applied to California, Oregon, and Washington only. Ship crews were then offered $50 rewards to go on land, claim redwood parcels, and deed land to the companies. And then the Supreme Court made it difficult to nullify such sales because it was hard to prove prior agreement. So what, what can you add to that? And, and then we'll go back to the, what we had been discussing. Yeah, this was a good example of the sort of plunder-pillaging era because you had laws that didn't really work to cover the situation, but the laws were sort of exploited. And as in this case, the courts kind of cooperated with that exploitation. So you had large amounts of land immensely valuable for redwoods being transferred into private ownership. And that's why 
there really wasn't federal efforts to protect redwoods that began in a serious way until the 1960s, 1950s and 1960s, after many of the old-growth redwood forests had been cut down. John Muir saw this problem coming. He, I think I quote him in the book. At one point, he said, the redwood, as a, as a structural wood, because it's light, it's strong, it's not free, it's rot-resistant, it's too good to live. Muir said. It was so immensely valuable that the lumber interests basically paralyzed Congress. I mean, that Congress couldn't deal with the problem because of the political clout behind the immense profits being made by the redwood industry. And it took a long time. It took uh, really, uh, as I said, until the 1960s that Congress finally got around to protecting as a matter of federal law and holding in federal ownership redwood lands. Most of the old growth redwoods ended up in private hands under these abuses of these various laws. States actually, state of California in particular, uh, actually started the first efforts to protect redwood lands through acquisition under a state park system. The federal government sort of was behind the curve on that. But now quite a bit of redwood land has been, old growth redwood has been protected. What's left uh, has been protected in state and in the big national park up in Northern California. Let's move on to the Antiquities Act of 1906. Comes up frequently these days. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, become quite well known. In this act, Congress gave the president explicit authority to set aside and protect on public lands. It only applies to lands owned or controlled by the United States. That's what the statute says. But it authorizes the president to establish, quote, national monuments to protect, quote, Objects of historic or scientific interest, which is quite broad and was deliberately broad. The background of the act, it was motivated primarily by the sort of plunder of archaeological and cultural sites, old dwellings from past civilizations in the Southwest that were being basically plundered for collectors, primarily in Europe. So Congress stepped in and said, we we want to give the president authority to protect these areas, but we're going to write the statute in a way which is not limited to cultural sites. And that's why they said objects of historic or scientific interest. Well, President Theodore Roosevelt signed that act into law and then within a few months started using it to protect places like the Grand Canyon, 800,000 acres. It's an object of historic and scientific interest, he said, and the Supreme Court a few years later agreed with him. When a miner, actually, a miner who was a senator from Arizona, said president can't do that under the Antiquities Act because it's the Grand Canyon, after all, and it's not an object of historic or scientific interest. And the the Supreme Court of the United States, in a unanimous decision, said, are you kidding? (laughs) You know, it's it's the greatest eroded canyon in the world, attracts millions of visitors. Scientists uh, are always studying it to learn various things about geology, etc. It is definitely within the scope of the Antiquities Act. And presidents have used the Antiquities Act, both parties, by the way, the presidents of both parties. And, and this is an important thing to underscore, because in this long history of public lands, the efforts to hold and protect public lands have been thoroughly bipartisan. We tend to not think in those terms these days when we think of everything as being partisan. You know, everything is red or blue and, and you're in one camp or the other. But if you look at the history of public lands, it is absolutely clear that presidents and legislators of both parties have worked together to protect these places. Theodore Roosevelt was a Republican. Herbert Hoover was a Republican and used the Antiquities Act to protect many millions of acres. He first set aside Death Valley, for example, and other places. President George W. Bush 
was the first president to use the Antiquities Act to protect large marine areas offshore, submerged federal lands in the Pacific, and on and on. You can see efforts by both parties to use the Antiquities Act to protect large amounts of public land. And Congress has never, Congress gave the president that power in the beginning and has never withdrawn it, never even seriously entertained withdrawing it. It it likes it. In fact, the typical pattern, as at Grand Canyon, was the president uses the Antiquities Act to set aside and protect a large area of federal land. And then a few years later, Congress comes along and says, yeah, we really like that. Actually, we're now going to make it a national park. That's happened over and over again. So the Antiquities Act is really, in some ways, the father or the progenitor of a lot of the national park system. In recent years, the story hasn't been quite that happy. (laughs) And I want to put you on the spot, John Leshy. You are a professor emeritus at University of California Hastings College of Law. And President Obama used the Antiquities Act to create the Bears Ear National Monument. President Clinton used it to create the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. And then former President Trump just devastated both of those by reducing the acreage in case of Bears Ear by, I think, 85%. So two questions. Are there any precedents for a president doing that? And do you think it holds legal water for a president to be able to undo a former president's work under the Antiquities Act? Both good questions and both unresolved. That is, we don't have a definitive court decision on this. No president has undone, that is, completely gotten rid of a national monument that a previous president has created. There's no precedent for that. And therefore, there's no court test of that. There are some precedents for doing what Trump did, which is shrink a national monument created by a previous president. But prior to Trump, the shrinkages were actually quite small, an acre here, an acre there, redraw boundary over here, redraw boundary over there, and none of them challenged. So we don't have any court decisions on whether that was actually legal or not. So Trump comes along and substantially shrinks these two monuments, and environmental groups litigated that. Indian tribes, who were strong supporters of the Bears Ears, brought that to court. But the court never got around to deciding it before President Biden was elected, and then he restored the monuments that Trump had shrunk. So we don't have an opportunity for a court case there either. But I would argue, and I make this argument in the book, that the Trump shrinkage is really the exception that proves the rule that protecting these public lands is tremendously popular for a couple of reasons. What Trump actually called for when he took over office was he called for a careful review of all the national monuments that presidents had created in the last 30 or 40 years. And he said, bring me, uh, I'll get rid of these things if you want. So give me recommendations. The only two shrinkages that were recommended were the, the two Utah monuments. And everywhere else, the overwhelming majority of sentiment locally as well as nationally was leave them alone. And even in Utah, it was, it was, it was and is a quite controversial issue. And there was a, a lot of support for keeping the monuments. And of course, Biden has now restored them. So I would argue that what happened to the Trump initiatives on those two monuments actually, in a way, proves their, their enduring popularity 
And so I think we'll see more of the Antiquities Act use in the future and, and probably should as a, as a tool to protect more public lands. Well, John Leshy, we're not even halfway through your book, Our Common <laughs> Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, and we're pretty much out of time. I want to give you a moment to, you only get one minute here, so <laughs> out of the other 300 pages, what do you need our listeners to know? I think that they need to know that uh, an appreciation for the history of these public lands is so important to the American character in many ways and so important for the challenges that we face. And I don't mean just the challenges the public lands face. They face big challenges in terms of climate change and loss of biodiversity and overwhelming popularity. I mean, as you all know from what's happened with the pandemic, I mean, millions and millions of people trotting out to the public lands looking to recreate, to, to have these life-changing encounters with nature and all of that. They're tremendously important, but they're also important as a lesson for how the government works. I think the public lands are a tremendous political success story. And if you look at opinion poll after opinion poll in all the states, overwhelmingly popular. Should we do away with the public lands? Should we reduce protections for the public lands? Overwhelmingly unpopular, bipartisan. All Everybody agrees on this vast majority of people agree on this. So it's a governmental success story. We're happy with what, what we have now as a result of these political decisions. So I think you know, restoring confidence in the political system and the understanding that it can do good and that good can come from bipartisan action like has happened on the public land is a tremendous success story, tremendous story that more Americans should be familiar with. Well, John Leshy, thank you so much for doing all the work you did to put this book together, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, and for sharing your knowledge with us today on Forthright Radio. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Joy. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll come back anytime. Well, you, you may have second half. We may have to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John. I mean right. that most sincerely. Thank you. Uh, thank you. You have just heard an interview with John Leshy, Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. We discussed the first half of his forthcoming book, Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands, soon to be published by Yale University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You will also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. This land is your land. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.